0: Hello, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Welcome to episode three one seven three seventeen. I'm going to go back to my roots, which is wood and traditional period furniture. So, you know, amongst many things, we're kind of it's in the the, the fourth throes of doing a, a whole series of episodes on uh, the general. The first president, George Washington, and we're going to start something on English furniture. I know I did furniture styles probably some 300 episodes ago, but uh, we're going to get into some more specifics. Some information here that uh, I think is going to really uh, break down the origins of furniture and how it developed over the years, particularly in the UK. So let's, let's get started. So let's, let's talk about uh, furniture the dawn of construction in wood. Wood is art. In the attempt to create a a history of a nation's art and handicrafts, one is compelled to make an arbitrary beginning somewhere as the age of utility, when mankind first began to attempt to adapt to raw materials of nature to his own needs. So this would carry us back to unknown ages. One is, is obliged to begin with the dawn of art, and art begins with decoration. This is a truism, but one which is often too ill-comprehended, mainly because one is apt to confuse decoration with ornament. While often allied, ornament is decoration. Of course, decoration is not necessarily ornament. This difference must be clearly understood if confusion in terms is not to result. A piece may possess decorative form in shape, proportion, or otherwise, yet be destitute of ornament. It is nevertheless a work of art and has every claim to be regarded as such, whereas without form, Proportion or ornament, it can have no title to be so considered. On the other hand, any attempt at ornamentation, however crude and primitive, establishes such a title, even if other form or proportion may be absent. Art, therefore, can rise in two ways. At least it can be constructional, or it can precede construction. But primitive art, arising as it does in very lowly ways, can easily be overlooked. Take the dugout boat of, say, Robinson Crusoe and compare it with a modern yacht. The lines of the latter are deliberately studied, so as to make it a thing of beauty on the water, whereas with the former, utility was the only consideration to a castaway. So had Caruso devoted any of his time to ornament, the chiseling of a pattern around the rail of the vessel, one would have recognized and acknowledged attempt at decoration. But he had spent the same amount of time in shaping the hull in order to render it pleasing to the eye. That is, going beyond the confines of mere, <clears throat> mere utility. So many may have failed to recognize the boat as such a work of art, which it would have been, in fact. In the first dawn of art, in English furniture and woodwork, exterior or interior, construction and art are interchangeable terms, as art implies deliberate selection, and one must select before construction can be possible. One cannot take rough wood and, in its crude state, make anything from it, without giving a definite shape and form to each piece so that it will fit another. To do so, one must have a selective eye. The constructive thing must be decorative before it can be assembled. It must take on a definite artistic quality, even if the ornament be entirely absent. Conversely, a thing may be ornamented without being constructed, and thus art, which includes ornament as well as decoration, may proceed by reason of the ornamentation, which indicates the guiding hand and observing eye of of man, with capacity for selection and rejection. This everyone will admit, but what is so frequently unobserved is the construction devoid of ornament, may still be artistic, no matter how crude the art may be. The art of the stonemason is much older than that of the woodworker in England, and it is instructive to follow the development of the latter. Where the methods of the former are copied faithfully, until in the latter years of the 13th century, the carpenter begins to awaken to the possibilities and properties of his own material, wood. And then, for the first time, he begins to construct instead of build or hew. The persistence of early, t- <coughs> of early type is also remarkable and must be looked at for by an earnest inquiry. Thus, the mason's miter, barred from the ages of English woodwork, was in its infancy, is found as late as the 17th century, and constructive methods, or lack of them, persists to much later periods than one would expect. Knowledge or trade tradition, which is the same thing, does not extend to the hold of a trade or the craft, and primitive construction is a dangerous guide in attempting to date a piece of woodwork. One who starts out to a certain distant point and makes a minute error of one second of an arc in his direction at the starting point, will find that the divergence from the true line assumes serious proportions as he proceeds on his quest. In the same way, one who fails to approach the cons- conditions of the middle-aged craftsman at the outset will equally fail to realize the significance of which much follows in the development history of English woodwork. The years up to the close of the 15th century were an age of pictures, or rather, pictorial representation. The standard of living was exceedingly low, and this was true for both lower and upper classes. The church monopolized the enlightenment of the time. Reading being a rare accomplishment, books were practically unknown to the laity. Amusements were few and not of of a very elevating character. It was the age of stories and legends, either oral or commemorated in carvings, stained glass, or mural paintings. The rude or chancel screen embellished with pictorial representations of the saints was a rarity at that time. Even the walls of the early churches were decorated in the same manner. Taste was coarse, even in the holy places. And if one examines the carved ends of choir stalls, or later defacing by the minions of Cromwell, had not destroyed them entirely, it will be found that the subjects are usually rebban To say at least, those in St. Michael's Parish Church, now Coventry Cathedral, will serve us as examples. The medieval church, with its meeting house of the people, their place of amusement. The chancel alone was sacred, and even to this day the nave remains the property of the parish, maintained by the common funds, whereas the chancel is in the charge of the church. Many accounts still exist in church records of drunken bouts known as ales, which show the monetary contributions of the parish to these orgies. Apart from these, and certain outdoor sports such as archery contested fairs, the lower classes had no amusements whatsoever during the Middle Ages. Hunting and hawking were not for them. The standard of living being crude in the extreme, furniture equally scanty, both in variety and amount. A rough trestle table, a few stools, and a chest would be all even in a yeoman's house. The bedstead was for the wealthy only, for the lowly a straw or rushes on the floor was enough, or that's all they could afford to sleep by. To understand the dawn of construction of English woodwork, it is necessary to bear in mind the early subdivisions of the trade itself. So up to the middle of the 13th century, Such divisions had not arisen yet, the carpenter being the sole craftsman in wood, right up to the end of the dissolution of monasteries, which may be said to extend from 1525 to probably 1550. He was still supreme. He was assisted by the woodcarver and in such great works as choir stalls at Winchester which is typical of 13th century work at its best. It is doubtful whether the credit for excellence is not due almost entirely to the carver. These great canopies are hewn from great baulks of English oak, united only by the divisions between the stalls. They are, in the highest degree, ornamental. In the lowest, are only constructive. So we are apt to judge of the age of this early woodwork by its technical perfection, oblivious to the fact that progress does not always conform to modern theories in the ubbling manner. Thus, the pulpit of Chivalstone Church in Devon, which is a very progressive country in which early wor- woodwork ex- still exists, is hewn from the solid oak log, yet has ornament of linen fold panels an unmistakable sign of the very late 15th century. If not of the early 16th, it should be 13th century or earlier, only it isn't. So much for theories based on construction principles. The fact is that while the carpenter had progressed in constructional knowledge or in tradition, which is another name for the same thing, A distant race of craftsmen had arisen, workers of lesser status, and utterly without trade traditions. Or Arkwrights, the medieval language of documents in England, up to the end of the 14th century, is a kind of bastardized Norman French, hence the term henchier. The Ark was the place of safety, and was used to designate the chest. So the important piece of furniture made not only to hold silver, fabrics, and other valuables, but also the vehicle of their transport from place to place, a chest. The man who fashioned anything from wood, metal, or any other material was named a wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. Hence the modern word wrought. And this the same name persists in the for example, the shipwright and the wheelwright. Now we're talking about the arkwright. So he was a maker of chests, a chest of drawers. And he ranked far below the medieval carpenter, the constructor of timber houses, and of the woodwork in cathedrals and churches. So in the Middle Ages, all, all art sprang up from the church. And the best craftsmen were nearly always churchmen. Monks or lay brethren, it has been computed that at the time Henry the Eighth began to suppress the great monasteries, nearly one-third of the entire wealth of England was in clerical hands, and wealth in those days was tangible in more da- more ways than one, as the church found to its cost in land, buildings, gold, silver jewels vestments, fabrics, illuminated missiles, tapestries, and similar property, not in mere figures on paper as at the present day. Not only did the church aggrandize nearly all the wealth, all education, in the sense of book learning, and the entire range of the arts and crafts were in the church's hands itself. Art flourished only in the shadows of great mon the great monastery, or mighty abbeys. So, if if we investigate the the building of any of uh, the wonderful English cathedrals of the period, if we seek for the creator of illuminated missal, of carved or decorated altars, uh, of chancel or parclose screens, it is always an abbot, monk, or lay brother whom we find, that is, if we succeed at all. The art of the woodworker culminated in the 15th century. That of the worker is stained glass some of 200 years before, but from 1425 to 1520 is still the most golden age of English craftsmen. When living was cheap, famines almost unknown, wages were high, and leisure was quite abundant. They had it all. It is in those years the innumerable rich, but small parish churches arose everywhere throughout England, where, in wonderful screens, stalls, pews, and font covers, the leisure, piety, and artistic emulation of the craftsmen had full sway at that point in time. Now where do we find any records of this work being paid for in money? Bills exist for gold, colors, timber, but of wages there is no trace. It was solely a labor of love, and it serves to indicate the amount of spare time which the artisan of the 15th century possessed. The period sees the English church at the zenith of its power the next half-century witnessed its nadir. In the investigation of early records, one is apt to be confused by names which have since acquired other significance. Thus, the master carpenter, such as Master Hugh Harlan, who built the great oak roof of Westminster Hall in 1395, was the medieval equivalent of the latter architect and in no sense a workman. William of Wykeman, Bishop of Winchester, Counselor to uh, King Edward III, Chancellor of England, builder of Windsor Castle, and founder of New College at Oxford, was the master carpenter of Winchester Cathedral, as well as a great prelate. So we find another worker in wood during the Middle Ages who is difficult to localize. So elusive is he. This is the wandering craftsman, itinerant, carpenter, carver, or mason. Usually of foreign birth, though. Almost an outlaw in some stretches. Certainly a soldier of fortune. A brigadier. So, who superseded Master Pagany as the designer of the tomb of Henry Seventh in Westminster Abbey? At the invitation of Burly Harry, and incidentally introduced the Renaissance into England, is an example of the type truculent, lawless, yet a fine artist withal. He is in very good company with Villon and Cellini. The work of these men, whether in wood, stone, or metal, is far above the average level of the time, and renders the task very difficult of dating without apparent anarchism. The laws regulating labor were severe, if not savage, during the 14th and 15th centuries. No artisan could leave his village or town without the consent of the abbot or lord of the manor. To wander a field without such sanction rendered him liable to arrest and hanging from the nearest tree. Without trial, as a rogue and masterless man. Those licensed to travel were known as journeymen, a name which has persisted to the present day, but has entirely lost its earlier significance 100%. It is curious that the old Senec Port de Winchester on the south coast of England has never had this ancient statue formally repealed, with a result, that the mayor still has this medieval power to hang without trial any unemployed man he finds in the village. Needless to say, the privilege is not exercised anymore and for many, many years. But such was the law against vagabondage even until the end of the 16th century. It is difficult in the case of the very early work of woodworkers... To segregate furniture from woodwork, as in churches, for example, the chair was a fixing thing, for example, the abbot's throne or the monk's stall. Thus, the usual definition of furniture, as something is movable, does not apply. The earliest piece of all was the chest, for the reasons already given. The table is rare for two reasons— In the first place, the table on legs or trestles was usually a huge thing, intended chiefly for the great hall or the guard room. There is one at Selfie Marbley, which is over 30 feet long, and very occasionally we find a table specifically made for the old game of shuffleboard, a pastime which has survived to the present day in country inns under the name of Shove a penny. A coin is placed at the extreme end, just overhanging the edge, and is projected up the table by a smart blow of the open hand. The winner is one of those coin stops the nearest to the mark as the other end. One driven right off the table is dead. These old shuffleboard tables may have been in general use once, but they are extremely rare now. There is only one at Asty Hall, Chlory, in Lancash- Lancashire, which is over 400 years old. It has 20 legs, and the top is a herringbone parquetry of finely grained oak. Two of the original counters are still preserved, in form similar to the modern 4-ounce brass weight. The table must and has been placed in position before the long gallery at Aste was ever completed, as it is impossible to remove it now without taking apart or breaking down one of the side walls of the abbey. The medieval chair is the rarest piece of all, if the wor- word would be used to define a secular piece as distinct from a clerical throne or stall. Even in the guild halls of the time, the stool was not the usual seat. And until early the close of the 16th century, a domestic chair was almost unknown. Even as late as this, the chair was a seat of dignity reserved for the master or the mistress of the house. And for the stranger to have occupied it, uninvited, would have been a grave insult. It is not until after the restoration of 1660 that the chair became the useful useful seat of the table for meals. So not until 1660. Next in importance is the bedstead. But here we are without any very early examples. We know from preserved records that the bed for, say, William and Wycombe was a gorgeous affair of silk, velvet, bouillon, and embroidery whether it was a piece of wooden furniture or a couch placed in a recess in the wall, which is probably more probable, and dressed with valances, back clothes, and curtains, we're unable to say, who knows. But beyond a few examples of the late 15th century bedposts which have survived and of which the English nationality is questionable. We know of no bedsteads prior to the days of Elizabeth, but from that date on until the end of the 18th century, if not almost until the middle of the 19th, the bedstead was the four-post kind with tester and bed clothing hangings. It is only within the last hundred years that the science of ventilation and draft exclusion has reached such a stage of perfection as to render, render the open bedstead a practicable thing. In the English country districts, even in the late 17th century, the usual oak bedstead was in the form of a paneled box, not as we find or think about it as a four posts, only open on the two sides and roofed in the same way as the more artistic four-poster bed today. The trundle bed of New England is a good example of the unhygienic carried into days within the living memory. It is necessary to bear in mind the earliest dates when certain pieces first appear. We are likely to make the same error as the man who demanded a book illustrating Romanesque gas fixtures. Certain experts rely crudely on evidence of extreme age and they fall into grievous errors in consequence. They ignore the fact that after the dissolution of monasteries, when the culture of England in art and handicraft was driven forth through the forest and thicket as outlaws, a new race of inferior craftsmen were born, with none of the former having any fine traditions, with only dim memories of early glories of the Gothic woodwork. And this new craftsman class began in the unconstructional manner of the early 13th century, and this as in the late middle of the 16th. Thus, the Burwatsian cupboard in the Victorian Albert Museum is, or was, described as mid-15th century, while there is no evidence that the chest evolved into the standing cupboard until after 1500. There is no cultured Gothic example of a standing cupboard extant in England. No latter developments from the Burwatson example are extant. One would expect such it were correctly dated. The whole question of Gothic furniture and woodwork in England is so tangled up with conflicting phrases and sources of evolution that it will be necessary to straighten out the tangle before any progress can be made with my inquiry. Even if truth and accuracy were not desirable for their own sakes, the history of the development of a nation's domestic handcrafts is too important to allow ignorant guesswork to pass for knowledge. This is a definite branch of society, one which has been neglected as of little or no account. Hitherto, but it now accepted as possessing far-reaching influences on the life of a people. How a nation lived in its homes is now recognized by having a far greater importance than facts as how many of the same people perished on this or that battlefield in quarrels in which they had little or no personal concern whatsoever. So we manifest great interest in the chair or throne of Tut Yaman, although we in, you know, looking at England have little in common with the domestic life of they say the ancient Egyptians, but we are not concerned in knowing how the generality of the people lived in those days of the Wars of the Roses. Although we preserve the date and full account uh, of each battle and teach this history as something worthwhile in the schools and cottages throughout the UK. Another late arrival in the field of the English woodworker is the or wainscot, or wainscote as Americans call it, or wall paneling. Paneling appear only at the very close of the 15th century, and even then they are quite exceptional. In the medieval house of the Great Hall, the private apartments have either bare stone or plaster walls, or these were hung with arras or tapestry. In some instances, where they may not have been as exceptional as what we have thought, hitherto patterns are rough pictured scenes and were painted on the plastered walls of the wattle and daub. But these, covered at a later date with whitewash, paint, or woodwork, would appear when the house was demolished and their presence Heartily suspected. Two examples are preserved in the museum at Saffron Walden in Essex, discovered almost by accident during the demolition of some old houses in the district. In churches, these wall paintings must have been almost general. Those who are interested can be referred to as mural paintings in English churches during the Middle Ages. The Great Hall bisecting the entire house from ground to roof, was ill-adapted for paneling and wood. And the same is true of churches composed of nave, aisles, and chancel, and with one or more chapels. So even in the latter, which partake in the character of private apartments, the walls were generally used for the intersection of memorial tablets and the like. The altar end of the chancel was probably paneled at a very early period, but the dissolution of monasteries in 1525 to 1550, the edicts almost the use of altars under Edward VI and Elizabeth, and the deliberate vandalism under Cromwell, when destruction of church monuments was carried out on a systematic and wholesale scale, to say nothing of restoration in Victorian times have left nothing of these panelings of the 15th century or earlier to be found anywhere. The detached redos, which are fragments, and it may have been a predella in which the Norwich Cathedral is enough to show in construction and the high standard of its 14th century painting, some of the glories of the early churches of England. So with this general survey um, that we just spoke about, I can proceed to tr- trace the rise and development of wainscoting in England from the last years of the 15th century to those through the Age of Enlightenment in the 18th century. So, with some at least, of the false conceptions and premises we'll be cleared from our path in the next few episodes. Thank you for listening. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out.